just uh, make sure that uh, Dr. Sorotskin got any introduction before. Not that I can give a proper introduction, but I think that anybody who's heard him during the uh, panel discussion realizes that we have a tremendous amount to learn from him. He has a wealth of knowledge. Uh, Dr. Sorotskin has been a clinical psychologist uh, for a long time, as long as I remember his name. His name is he was one of the, the, the Gedolim in the field, uh, formerly uh, living and practicing in, in, in Eretz Israel, now practicing in Brooklyn, and it's a cover to introduce Dr. Sorotskin. Rav Leif Saris. Okay, that's not. That's not giving out all the trade secrets. Hi, good luck, everyone. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking Rabbi Fishman and the complete and the, all the staff members of Torah Masara uh, for giving myself and my family an opportunity to spend such an inspiring and informative Shabbos weekend. It's certainly appropriate for Torah Masara to be sponsoring a weekend on the issue of parenting, since after all, Torah Masorah, Taka put Torah Chinach on the map in America, and it is Taka appropriate for them such a conference. The theme of this conference, of this weekend, as you've all seen, is making a good child great. I would like to, with your permission, with your indulgence, I would like to change your focus a little bit, and perhaps we can focus on the tools necessary to ensure that our good children remain good. In fact, I would propose that, di- that working directly to try to li- elicit greatness in a child could be quite a dangerous proposition. In fact, it could jeopardize their future goodness. When, when, if somebody tries to directly promote or induce greatness in a child, it could be promoting a very difficult, a serious emotional problem, the problem of perfectionism. It's very interesting. Recently, a sefer came out about a year ago in Eretz Yisrael, a very chashur sefer on Chinuch, has askoma from the Mashgiach and Kvar Chasidim, and has a whole parak dedicated to this problem of perfectionism. In fact, you can see the, how to spell perfectionism in Hebrew. And it talks about perfectionism was when somebody feels that anything that he accomplishes that's less than perfect has absolutely no value, zero. In fact, it's a humiliating defeat. It's a shameful defeat. Unlike somebody who strives for excellence and tries to do as best as he can, but appreciates that if he did a 90% job, that that also has a chashivas, even if he tries to do more, even if he tries to do better, but he has a sense of accomplishment, a perfectionist, anything less than 100% is pushed, shameful, and embarrassing. And what this does, it erodes, since perfection, perfection is actually, is really reserved for the Rebbeinu Shalaylam, and we can never really truly achieve perfection, so therefore the person is constantly frustrated. In my practice, it, it is very sad how many people I met whose lives were ruined when they were told when they were young because they were very, very bright and they were told by parents or teachers that they are destined to be the next Chazaynish. This was literally their death sentence in Ruchnias. Because anything that they accomplished from that day on is, became totally meaningless. So therefore, it's kind of dangerous to set out to have a great child. 
Also, with your permission, I'd like to ask which parent here claims for themselves greatness that they expect that to, have, to find that in their children. Are any of us so great that this is what we expect, this is our expectation? I saw once, I saw in various swarm that discussed that the children of two G'daylim, or Yaakov Kamenetsky and Shlomo Zaman Arbach, that they both mentioned, or the children of these two G'daylim mentioned, that whatever the father benched them, they wouldn't bench him, they should vaccinate to be G'dayla Adar, they, should, didn't, they didn't bench him, they should vaccinate to be Kamida Chachamim, they bench him, they should vaccinate to be Erlechiyidin. Okay. Similarly, I heard once from Tisho Salman, he was speaking about Inyani Chinuch, and a parent asked him, a parent was concerned that if they help their child develop self-confidence, maybe this will make them Baligaiva. Ramatisho said it was such an incredible word, such an insightful observation. He said that it's mamish fakert. It's exactly the opposite, that helping, that, that self-confidence is the opposite of gaiva. What shot? He said, because shot being self-confident is that a person feels confident that they can do something as well as an average person. And that's a thing with that. They can do it as well as an average person. And that a person could be reasonably confident about. A Balgaiva doing what the average person does simply doesn't cut it. As a Bakr once told me, a Bakr who was never able to get out of bed before 12, he told me once that what's the point of getting out of bed just to be average? Right? So uh, somebody who has to do something better than everyone else, so that's, it's very difficult to be confident about such a thing. So therefore, perhaps we'd be better off if we strive to provide our children with a healthy environment, healthy and ruchnius, emotionally healthy environment, so at least that their goodness should not be jeopardized. And perhaps they'll have a shot at being great, as we know from the Sawyer, from Gedalim and Chazal, that greatness is very much dependent on some factors that we don't have direct control over. Certainly tefillah is a tremendously important part of such a thing, and to directly set out to accomplish greatness could be very, very dangerous. Because how does one usually go about trying to promote greatness? How in the world, in the mice in the world, how do people try to go about it? Usually pressure, right? Usually it requires pressure to pressure a child to learn more, to memorize more. And competitiveness, competition. Usually we try to induce competition because this way we try to elicit greatness. And the G'daylin warn us about these two issues. In the Sefer, Darke Achaim, a new Sefer that recently came out from Remichel Yehuda Lefkowitz, he writes, he emphasizes again and again that we have to be careful not to pressure children in the Ruchnias. He writes in one place, And he repeats it many times throughout his Sefer. Likewise, many, many G'daylim, both present and past, warn very strongly against excessive competitiveness between students. And even though, it says in the Sefer, we know the Chazal tell us, which incidentally is very interesting, it's always bothering me, I once asked Rav David Feinstein about it, because... All the places Chazal talk about Kinnah Seifrim, it's talking about Malamdim. It's talking about Malamdim, it's not talking about Talmidim. I don't think there's any source in Chazal that talks about Talmidim, that there should be competitiveness between them. But we'll leave that aside at the moment. But the Metziah says, Ramichal Yehuda writes, first of all, many G'daylim in the past have written 
have spoken about the fact that kinesiphon very often is not the, is not the kinesiphon, the healthy kinna that Chazal talk about. There's a very common, unhealthy version of kinesiphon, and that's not Mar B'chachma. But Vanich Leibowitz and the Sefer Chedush Alev speaks about it very often. But Remichel Yehuda takes it a step further. In his Sefer he writes that in our generation, it simply does not exist. Healthy Kinesiphim does not exist anymore. There is no such thing. So anytime you see Kinesiphim, you should know that it's not healthy. And he, he writes there very strongly that it's a job of today's Mechanchim, today's Rabbanim, today's Balamdim, today's Rosh Hashivas, is to discourage competitiveness. Unfortunately, that isn't the Matthias. It's being encouraged more and more and more, ever more than it was before. But that's what he writes. In fact, I would say in some circles today, it's almost required. You couldn't be posh, you can't make a babacha, can't have a bar mitzvah if he doesn't make a siyam on Mishnayis. Perhaps if he has a very shvachikov, he can get away with making a siyam on a seder, but it's, this is par for the course now, you have to make a seder mishnayis. I'm sure it started originally, probably some self-motivated bacher who was very smart, it wasn't too difficult, and he wanted to do it. It was probably could have been even healthy, and it was a beautiful thing. And then there was Nebuch, a neighbor, who felt his son was becoming by mitzvah, he could, what people are going to say about me, if my, if my child doesn't make one, how will I look? And he started pressuring, and it became now a ganze pressure, you got to keep up with the Joneses or with the Goldbergs. And uh, today, and many times, I hear from the parents that tell me that part of the conflict between started out between them and the, between the her, her lady told me between her and her, her husband and her child, they're ready a year and a half before the bar mitzvah, but you got to start with Mishnayis. So the pressure used to start a few months before the bar mitzvah with the laning and with the pshetel, and now there became a whole new layer of pressure. Another way of, of trying to induce greatness is cutting back on leisure activity. I'm playing. Well, who says you have to play so much? You know, usually, unfortunately, many parents look at play as something that you allow a child to do with the evidence. So it's really be better if he learned all day and daven and did other such things. But no, listen, I might say got to be realistic. You can't expect a young child to do that all day. So, but let's break it. You have to let him play. The G'daylem, many G'daylem write, Revolva writes a very stark in the Sefer, Remichel Yehuda writes a very stark in the Sefer, that playing is a very integral part of, a ch- of a, the normal emotional development of a child. And it's an important thing for him to do. It's not something you let him do, it's something that he needs to do. And cutting it back, unnecessary, or more than a child, what's healthy for a child, could be very dangerous for a child's emotional development. Ravalba also emphasizes in Sriya Binyan Bechinach, he writes there that very often when you pressure a child too much, it can look like it works. It seems to work. The child taka produces, he does fabulously well in school, and it looks like it works. But he writes that very often, it doesn't, it, now it looks like it works, but the, the bill is going to become due when he becomes older, when he's not so dependent. In fact, it's very sad how many times I've had parents come to me with a, with a teenager with a serious either acting out problems or serious internal emotional problems. And very often, it's very sad, they will tell me they're shocked how this child developed these problems because he was the perfect child. I'm not sure this lush and I've heard countless times. I can't believe it happened to him. He was my perfect child. 
And they don't realize that's definitely why the problem was. How did he become a perfect child? Because his need, he had a very strong need to please, and to find favor, and to have his parents' approval. And therefore he sacrificed his whole self in order to please. And eventually, this lasts for a few years, and then when the child becomes a little bit less dependent, then the bill becomes due with interest. But Revolva points out that very often, you don't discover or the problems that are being produced by today's behavior doesn't, doesn't come out until the child is older. Because of this lack time, very often the problems, the causes of the problems are misattributed. We, we don't understand what the source of the problem is because there's a, a great gap, there's a, many years that can go by between when the problem starts being, starts being produced and when you see the effects later on. In fact, like Revolver writes, usually the problems start in the teenage years when the child is less dependent. So very often what people will tell me, a person will, a parent will describe to me a tremendous conflicted relationship between themselves and their child. And they'll say, you know, they'll describe like fighting and arguing and everything. You say, you know, like a teenager. As if this is something inevitable, like a law of nature, like the law of gravity. So they assume that this is what has to happen. I tell them, no, this is not normal, there's something wrong here, something went wrong, this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's actually many teenagers who get along quite well with their parents. This is not something that inevitably has to happen. Now in recent decades, in the last two decades or so, a very popular focus of causality, when people want to understand what was the cause of this problem, why did these problems come about, very often these problems are attributed to the influence of the outside culture. The decadent Western culture is now the reason for all our problems, all our serious chinuch problems. In fact, it was, it's a sub-theme of, today, of today's conference, which talks about the turbulent society. And almost, if you, in the last 20 years, you look, almost every conference sponsored by anybody, on the Nyan Echinuch, almost always part of the theme of the conference is dealing with the effect of the outside culture. I want to make it very clear that there's absolutely no debate and no question and no controversy about the decadent nature of Western culture. I think it's cool, like Pligi, everybody agrees on that. I think it's also indisputable that every normal thinking parent has to realize how you have to protect the children and adults, the family, from the influence of the outside culture. But because of this indisputable need to protect ourselves from the outside culture, many people have become very comfortable attributing all our serious chinuch problems to the influence of, from the outside. People do this for one of two reasons. Either they really believe it. It's a very common belief when you read about it in articles and you hear it in speeches. It's a very common belief that, for instance, that the major, if not the cause of, for instance, the children going off the derech, is because of the influence of the outside culture. It's a very popular belief. Now, other people realize that that's a bit of an exaggeration, but they figure there's no downside. Because since Lemaissa, parents have to be encouraged to be careful, and one does, in fact, have to protect themselves and their families from the outside culture. So, so what if you exaggerate a little bit? This will hopefully motivate parents to be more aware of this need. Now, of course, I think there would be a simple... I want to ask somebody who actually believes this, a pretty harsh, you know, a person in the field of Chinuch, who did claim that's not true, 
that that's the major cause. If I asked him a simple question, Itaka didn't have an answer. I said, if that was Taka true, that the outside influences are the main causes, then those uh, factions in the front community who are more insular to the outside environment should have proportionally much less of these serious problems than those factions in the front community that are more quote-unquote modern and more open to the outside environment. It's partially like that. As far as I know, there is nobody who claims that to be true. I think that the more insular communities have this problem to the exact same degree proportionally as the, the more... Uh, open communities. So I think that's pretty clear, conclusive evidence that that is not the main source of the problem. Now, of course, there are legitimate, as I said before, everybody agrees, as a Dover Pasha, that there has to be protection from the outside environment. There are legitimate debates within the, from the various kihilists in the from community, to what degree, to what extent one should be, should one isolate themselves from the outside environment. About ten years ago, there was a beautiful issue, special issue of the Jewish Observer on this question. It was called, The World Around Us, The Risk of Exposure and the Cost of Insularity. Because one needs to realize that it's not called that the more insular the better. There's a cost to being insular too. And to get the exact balance between exposure and being in, 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 in insularity, that one has to know there's different minhagim and different messiahs and different kihilis how far to go. But that's not our topic for tonight. But Lamai said, what's the downside? Okay, so... What's the difference? If we'll exaggerate a little bit and we'll blame everything on the outside influences, what is the downside? There is a tremendous sakana in over-attributing our chinuch problems to outside influences. Because it allows us to neglect the internal influences. It would be if you would see a heavy smoker who's complaining to you about his chronic cough, and he believes that it all comes from air pollution. Right? And you tell them, listen, you know, maybe you should cut down your smoking. That might help you kind of... I said, no, it's all from air pollution. It has nothing to do with my smoking. Right? I mean, he's not going to get too far in trying to solve this problem. Right? Because he's neglecting, since he's attributing it all to outside factors, he's able to neglect the internal factors. On a lighter note of misattribution, a few years ago I was walking with my Shreazal, he was ready in his 80s, and he had a, till recent, till, till a few years before, he had a full head of hair, unlike yours truly. And uh, we're, I'm walking with him, he says, you know, I don't know, lately I started losing my hair. I see in the shower, hair comes out. I don't know what it is. It must be that new shampoo Bobby bought. I, so I, 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 I tried to explain to him, no, it might have something to do with your age. He says, no, no, I never lost my hair, this must be the shampoo. Okay, so there's really no downside to believing it's that shampoo. The worst will happen, I'll buy another shampoo. But in other, more important areas of life, uh, you know, it could be a big danger when you don't pay attention to the real causes of problems. And I remember it's happened many times, it just happened recently, and I've had it many times before when I met a couple who were having problems of this sort with their, their teenage son. And he had become alienated from the family's way of life. And when the father described to me how he tried to protect his son from the outside environment, and he used quite restrictive and harsh methods, and quite unreasonable methods, to protect his child from the outside uh, uh, environment. So when I try to point out to him <clears throat> that perhaps this is one of the major factors that cause a breakdown in your relationship with your child, he was totally shocked and disbelieving. 
He said he was only... He said, well, you know, that's ridiculous to say because I, I criticize him a lot and I put him down a lot that that should be a reason to cause such problems. It can't be. So in order to try to bring out my point, I played devil's advocate with him. And I asked him a question. Tell me something. Do you ever bring the New York Times into your house? And he was like shocked. Mamish insulted. He said, well, how can you even think such a thing? Of course not. I should bring such a thing into my house. So again, playing devil's advocate, I said, why not? It's a very chosher newspaper. You know, the president and all the congressmen read it. It's a newspaper of record. He says, what? It's not written for our people. It's, it's written by Gleim and Apikursim. And there, there, there's things that you shouldn't read and shouldn't see. So again, pushing the envelope further, I said, okay, I didn't say you should bring it on a regular basis, you know, via mall, you know, sometimes something important happening in the Middle East, you want to know what's going on. Hashem, you look at it, even a child, and even an adult, you look at it once and see something they shouldn't see, or, or read something you shouldn't read, it's a, it has destructive influences for the rest of your life. Okay, I felt I made the points. So I asked him a question. I said, how could you believe these both things? When you talk about reading or seeing something that you know is written by a guy and apikairis that you know is not written for our community, the child knows that. That you understand can have a destructive influence on Eilam Void. But how the how you yourself, you're the the child, you're your son's father, the most important person in his life, and you can't understand how it could be if you constantly criticize him that that can have a destructive influence. How can you believe these two things? Is Mamshastira? Now this father t- did agree that he, had, he felt that he did what he was told. He heard many drushes, and he read in many articles in the Haredi press, how you have to protect your child from the outside influences, and that's where all the problems come from. And he did that. He did it. Mamish, Mahadrit. And he didn't understand what went wrong. Now, he did agree that he had read here and there, and he heard from Rabbonim, and he heard from Chanchim. It's important to have a pleasant atmosphere in the house. He did admit that he had heard such things, but he made it very clear that nobody ever stressed how destructive it could be if you don't listen to, these, to this advice. It's, you know, the chathila, it's a midas chasidis to be nice to your family. But no, nobody ever told him that it's ma'akiv, or that, that how destructive it could be, certainly not in comparison to the, the degree of emphasis given to outside dangers. And tragically, what happened to this person, as to many other people, the same methods he used trying to protect his family from these terrible outside influences is what made the child vulnerable to the inevitable exposure because you cannot hermetically seal a child from the outside environment. So the methods he used, which he felt is what was told to him, is what was the the ex and the downfall itself. So the goal of my presentation is to encourage parents to be as sensitive to the impact of the emotional environment at home as they are to the negative influences from the outside. And if people do this, they will talk to minimize the impact, because inevitably there will, be some imp- there will be some exposure to the outside influence, and that will minimize those dangers. Let us see how the G'daylim related to the relative dangers of outside influences uh, compared to the internal influences. You're probably all familiar here with a famous story, the Maisa with Ramesha, that has been repeated many times. You know, somebody many years ago asked Ramesha a question, that's like a, a, a gewaltically insightful question. I think the person who asked the question asked a tremendous kasha. You know, in the beginning of, last, of the early parts of the past century, when the Yidin came from Europe, there was a tremendous nisayin of Chil Shabbos, because you couldn't, hold, you couldn't get a job that you didn't have to work on Shabbos. Unfortunately, most people were not aimed bin nisayin and worked on Shabbos, but there were certain gibayrim, 
people who were in spite of all the Nisrainists. They, they, they would lose jobs every week. And, and, and the, the mice of the Ramatsliach with tremendous Messiah Snefesh to not work on Shabbos. Now, somebody asked Ramayisha, you know, we know, or we should know, that the most effective way to be mechanic is by setting an example. And here you have people who set a sterling example of Messiah Snefesh for Shabbos. And yet, unfortunately, Rav Rubam of the children of these parents, unfortunately, did not remain Shemir Shabbos. How is that possible? How would somebody answer the question? If somebody asked a similar question today, how would that be answered? People would say, "What? Irish Kashi asking? What kind of ridiculous question? The trade from the Medina? That's something. The influence from the outside. We're in America. Everybody knew there were Gedolim then that held. You weren't allowed to come to America, partially because of the trade from the Medina." Ramayshin also knew about the trade from the Medina, but that wasn't his answer. He said, "You know why? It was Dafka because of the Messiah Snefesh, because these parents." When they would come home after being fired again from their job because they wouldn't work on Shabbos, they'd come home practicing Oyev Yishir How difficult it is to be a Fromid. So the children, and I don't think Ramesh HaShem meant this to criticize these tremendous people, I think he just sang a Metzias. The Metzias is, if a child experiences, he associates Shmir Shabbos with pain and suffering, it's not such a pella that he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But Ramayisha did not blame the outside environment, he blamed the internal environment. So similarly, Rapinche Scheinberg in a safer that came out from him a few years ago, in discussing rebellious children, writes the following, Show me the rebellious teenager, and in almost every case I will show you a person resorting to desperate means to attract the emotional warmth and attention he failed to get, but so much wants and needs. He does not say a word in that whole chapter about outside influences. Similarly, Rav Asher Weiss, a contemporary Hasidish of Pesach in Eretz Yisrael, he's, I think I spoke a few times for Agudas Yisrael in recent years here in America, said the following in a convention of Mechanchem in London. And I quote, Even after we surround the youngsters with walls, if the area inside those walls is not filled with happiness and joy, no wall in the world will guarantee that the youngster will thrive. Walls can keep attackers at bay, but are not a substitute for the happiness and joy that must exist within the walls. Revoice was asked specifically, what is the main reason for children drifting away from Yiddishkeit? And he said, the root of the problem is when the child feels that's not good for him at home, and he goes to search for happiness somewhere else. Now, of course, all these G'daylim and all other G'daylim warn us just as strongly about the danger from the outside and how important it is to protect children from the outside. But the G'daylim realize you can't hermetically seal a child from the outside. It's impossible, and even if it was possible, it probably wouldn't be a great idea because it has its own downsides. And therefore, the G'daylim emphasize what you need to do inside your home in order to protect the child from the inevitable exposure to the outside world. Now, some parents may feel that this is, you know, it's blaming parents or putting an undue burden on the parents, but I'm telling you, I believe that this is really good news for parents. Because very often parents feel that they have so little influence on their child. From a young age, a child's already going to school. He spends so, so many hours with friends and at school, away from home. And certainly when they get a little bit older, you barely see them. And then they go off there to stroll and so on. And many times parents feel, listen, Lamaisa, they don't have that much of Ashba. So Fakir, when you realize how those early years, how important it is, those years are, and how much influence you could have at an early age, it should make a parent feel better. 
I remember many years ago this happened, something that happened that mom sticks in my mind like it happened yesterday. I was so touched by it. A mother came to me to discuss a consultation, to discuss issues she's having. She sees already the beginning signs of at-risk behavior with her child. She came to discuss it with me. So after she described the problem, I asked her, what do you think the cause of the problem is? She says, I don't know. I spoke to my child's pediatrician. He said, uh, maybe it's a chemical imbalance and so on. Uh, That already had become already a very popular term. She said, what do you think the problem is? Okay, now from what she had told me, I realized, again, this was a very harsh environment in the house. So I was trying to tell it to her very gently in a respectful manner. I started saying, you know, chemical imbalances, unlike what people think, is usually a result, not the cause of the problem, it's a result of the problem. And it could be it's so difficult to raise children these days, so perhaps, you know, maybe you're a little bit uh, too harsh. I was you know, uh, tiptoeing around the issue a little bit. So she picked up that I'm you know, a bit hesitant to say things too, too openly, out of respect for her feelings. So she stops me in the middle of my sentence, she goes... Doctor, you don't understand. I'm hoping you'll tell, you'll tell me it's something that I did. If it's other factors from the outside, I don't have too much influence in it. If you say it's something that I did, then it's something that I could correct. So this is the good news, that if we realize how much influence as parents, we, how much influence we have as parents, that is only something that's good for us. Now, another interesting point is when the G'daylim speak about the reasons for children drifting away from the family's way of life is very interesting. You know, they never, they never simplistically say that it's the Yetzirah. You know, when I speak very often to parents or to, 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 to Machanchim, and we talk about a particular child who's acting in a totally, in, a, in an extremely inappropriate way, and I'm trying to understand the reasons for it, like what happened in the child's life, and I would say, well, let's try to understand why he's behaving this way. I get sometimes a very shocked look from the parents or from the mechanchim. What are you looking for explanations? There's a simple reason for this type of behavior. It's called the Yetzirah. What are you you looking for other explanations? Now, obviously, the Yetzirah has something to do with this. You know, there are some people when they're depressed, they, they overeat. Does anybody overeat carrots or celery sticks? No, of course not. You overeat cake and ice cream. Because you look for pleasure as a substitute for happiness. So of course the Yitzhar is involved. But to try to understand what made this child particularly vulnerable to the Yitzhar is a very important part in trying to understand the child's behavior. When Ramichal Yehuda and his Sefer that I mentioned before was specifically asked about the dangers of the internet, he said the following, he stressed... He stresses that the major root of the problem is because there are children, there are Bachrim and Yeshiva who don't understand the Gemara so well, they're perhaps not the brightest kids in the class, and they have a Shrekhite and understanding, and perhaps he writes, some Chanchim only pay attention to the smarter children in the class, and therefore these children feel abandoned and frustrated, and that's what makes them particularly vulnerable to these outside influences. Now again, this doesn't mean that one can ignore the Yetzirah or to ever let down our vigilance against outside influences. Just like one can't ignore high fever. If a child has high fever, you have to take care of it immediately. And you have to give him Tylenol to knock down the fever. But woe is to the doctor who ignores, or the parent who ignores the underlying reason for the, for the fever. If the child has an infection and you just treat the fever, where are you going to get? 
There was a few years, uh, two, three years ago, there was a beautiful article I read from Rabbi Kellerman, from the Veyu Shalim, who wrote uh, the to Kindle a Soul and translated Revolver's Real Binyu Bechinech. And he wrote an extensive and in depth review of all the research on the dangers of the internet. It was a very comprehensive and well balanced. And after methodically documenting all the dangers that a child could run into on the internet, and adults too for that matter, and it's quite extensive. This, and there are there is many dangers as he as he documents in his article. Then he has under a specific under one subheading, he notes the following under the heading of the necessity of identifying risk factors. I want to read one paragraph. Rabbi Kellerman writes the following. Ultimately, restricting internet access is a necessary but insufficient solution. What is needed is healing the emotional weaknesses that virtually guarantee that some individuals will fall victim to internet temptations. Studies show that those most likely to get into trouble are not deterred by limits on internet access. Research describes four pre-existing conditions that put an individual at high risk for getting into trouble on the internet. They are, one, lack of family bonds, two, low self-esteem, three, inability to express opinions and questions, and finally, inability to socialize. Incidentally, this beautiful article was one of the articles that was printed in the special edition on Internet Dangers in the Jewish Observer, but unfortunately this particular section was omitted from that version of the article. Now, this idea of why the Torah, you know, this idea of one having to look and investigate the underlying factors that causes these dangers, why some people are more vulnerable to Yetzirah, is actually a pasuk in the Torah. In Parshas Kisavai, it says, after it brings out all the terrible clothes that will happen to Klai Yisrael, the old Teichicha, it ends off with saying, Tachas asher loyavatas, Hashem aleikecha besimcha betuv leivav. That because you weren't even Hashem besimcha, all the Mephoshim ask, you know, of course it's a big Indian to do mitzvahs besimcha, but where do we find that not doing besimcha is such a terrible Aveira that these horrible things should happen to Klai Yisrael? And the Mephoshim tell us that Avadid, these clothes happened because Itaka did terrible Aveiris. The Pasuk is only telling you how Klai Yisrael felt to such a terribly low Madrega because they weren't Aveid Hashem Simcha. Because of the Vishir Tzayin Ayid that we said before, the story from Ramesha, that is, when, 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 when mitzvahs are associated with lack of simcha, then it does not have a kiyah. It is very important to realize that very often youngsters are unaware of the true motivations, the true reasons, the true causes of their behaviors. Children, the teenagers are much more comfortable to talk about philosophical amuna issues, you know, yediyah and bechira, than they are to talk about the emotional, their emotional pain. And even when a child is ready to talk about emotional pain, they're much more ready to talk about the emotional pain they suffered in school than to talk about the emotional pain they felt at home. This is another reason why we often misattribute the causes of the problem. There are many people who honestly believe that the underlying causes of youngsters abandoning their family's way of life is because of, of Ashkafa issues. And therefore they think that it's, it is, you have to teach more Ashkafas in Yeshiva. Now it may be a good idea in itself, that's a separate issue, that should sound it's a good idea, but it does not touch this problem. As Remichel Yehuda writes in the Sefer, 
He writes, referring to, to Bachrim with Sveikus and Amuna, he writes, Iker Abaya, Hischila, Kivan Shlai Kibul, Babayas, Yacha Shil Idul Ve'ava. The main cause of why people develop so-called Amuna issues, Ashkafa issues, is because they do not receive sufficient uh, love and, and encouragement at home. And this is what caused these so-called deus issues. Similarly, Rav Asher wife states, Our children aren't leaving because of doubts or immune questions, they are leaving because they are not happy. Or to paraphrase one secular author, it is through pondering religious questions about God that people ask their most important questions about their parents. Why do they mistreat me? What do they always yell, why do they always yell at me? What do they want from me? What did I do wrong to deserve such treatment? Or as Ravitsa Kursner, as the Chaynel of Racha writes in his Sefer Antfila, he writes that parents are the Rebbeinishim's ambassadors. And just like a, an ambassador represents his country, a parent represents the ultimate authority figure, the Rebbeinishim, and if the parent is kind and understanding and sympathetic, then that's how the person will view the Rebbeinishim. And if a person, if a, if a parents are, 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 are overly critical and not understanding and, and, and malicious and, and, and uh, capricious, that's how the person is going to look at the Rebbeinu and it has a tremendous impact on the person's deepest emotional relationship to Yiddishkeit and to the Rebbeinu So what can parents do to avoid creating an internal vulnerability to negative outside influences? The first thing is, I think parents have to realize that all the advice you read about and hear about from G'daylin, from Rebbeinu and Mechanchim is not a L'chadchila, it's a Ma'akiv with terribly serious consequences if you don't follow it. The, the, what you heard this, this, from the Mechantchen that spoke here, Rabbi Shane and the other Mechantchen that spoke, these things are not stand nice advice, this is Mamish Ma'akiv. As Rav Asher Weiss wrote, Right says, the real antidote to this phenomenon of, of at-risk children must be administered in the home. The parents must create an atmosphere of joy and warmth. Some parents think that the most important thing is for their child to sit and learn day and night. They don't realize that a child must grow up in a pleasant and joyous environment. Then, when he is forced to deal with trials and challenges, he won't go off the derech. Now, if you think this is common sense, everybody realizes, I must tell you, that not too long ago I was at a kiddish, and I was schmoozing with some people, and I told somebody, a maisa, that somebody told me, a bachar who came back from Eretz Yisrael, he learned there in a smallish yeshiva, and he told me there were two groups of bachrim in his yeshiva. They came from two yeshivas in America. One yeshiva was a yeshiva where they were very makbed on davening, there was very serious consequences if you, uh, if you missed or even if you came late. And the other yeshiva was more laid back about it, it wasn't so strict. The new yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael was not strict, and plenty of bachrim didn't show up on time. But of those, the only ones who did show up were the ones who came from the yeshiva that they weren't strict. Nobody from the yeshiva where they were strict, when they got to this place where they weren't strict, nobody from there showed up. Told somebody the Maisa, somebody told me, so a middle-aged father tells me, that's ridiculous, that story cannot be true. How do you know it's not true? He says, push it, because that's the essence of Chinuch, he tells me. The essence of Chinuch is forcing a child to do what's right. That's what he told me. So I said to him, listen, there might be some other ways. You can encourage, you can inspire, you can set an example, you can have a warm relationship with a child. So he looks at me a little bit pathetically and he says, you know, that's very good for lectures, for stories. Forcing a child to do what he needs to do. 
Okay, so I guess this is a person who hasn't gotten the message. Revolve, he writes in Al-Dalishur, he speaks very strongly that the only way to assure that a child stays on track is to have a warm relationship with the child. It's only by heeding, the Revolve says, it's only by heeding Chazal's warning that also lahatil that is the only way to make sure that the natural bond between the parent and child, which all small children have, that it isn't lost as time goes on. This is again, this directive is not l'chathchila, it's a ma'akiv. Revolva emphasizes, as we said before, that when a child is small and dependent, he'll do anything to win his parents' approval, because he so desperately needs it, and he has to go along with it, and it looks like it works, and then when he gets older, the tab becomes due. Now, sometimes... When a child is young and, as, and is very dependent he, and he's passively submissive, sometimes a child, when he gets older, does not rebel. He internalizes those attitudes and he becomes passively submissive throughout his adulthood also. And these are people who go to any length to please other people and to make a good impression about other people. And you might think, well, so it really worked very well. No, those children sometimes suffer terrible psychological problems later on because of these internalized attitudes. These are people who become very perfectionistic, who have to sacrifice themselves to to impress other people, win other people's approval. You know, I recently met very often people who suffer from extreme anxieties and panic attacks have this problem. I recently met a bacher for the first time who suddenly, he got married not too long ago, and he started suffering terrible panic attacks. And I started asking him about his history. He says everything was fine. He grew up. Everything was wonderful. But then after asking a few more questions, it turns out that his father, who was a Rebbe somewhere out of town, was very strict with him about his learning. And he told me, Pashid, that if he did not know the Gemara Klur, and any, he was always a, a, decent, you know, a, a good student, but if there was any day that he did not understand, know the Gemara Klur, he mamish was terrified to come home. And not because his father would beat him up or do anything overtly abusive to him, just a look of disappointment on his father's face was more than he can bear. And at one point he told me, as I was discussing, understanding his attitude toward himself, he told me, I don't think much of myself. I said, why not? He said, because I'm not the top guy. He didn't say because I'm not learning, or anything like that. No, because he's not the top guy. So he's not the top guy. How, how can you hold it yourself? As Ravitsa Kursner wrote, he said at one point, he said the following, the worst, things, the worst thing parents can do is to create in the mind of the developing child the idea that the only way that he'll be accepted in love is if he forsakes his pursuit of self for the happiness of his parents. This creates a horrendous distortion of the child's normal emotional development. In fact, listen to the sentence, it's unbelievably, unbelievably insightful. In fact, healthy emotional growth involves being able to give up our need for approval when the price for the approval is the giving up of the true self. And this is so often the underlying problem, of, uh, the underlying issue of many serious emotional problems that the person has given up his whole truth. He doesn't have a truth self. He doesn't have a self. There's no existence of a self because he long ago gave it up in order to win approval. Started with the parents and now it continues with others. Now very often parents have problems with these issues because they mistakenly believe that inducing positive behavior, positive behavior by any means, including terror, could only 
ensures future good behavior. Now, if you get the child to behave properly, no matter how, it doesn't matter how, then he'll become habituated, he'll become a habit, and from now on, he will act appropriately. And this is, I think, a horrible misrepresentation, a misunderstanding, a tragic misunderstanding of the Chazal, that many people feel that this is a law of nature like the law of gravity, and therefore, if a child does something, no matter how you get him to do it, you bribe him, you threaten him, however you do it, it will automatically become Lishma. Exactly how people believe this is a little bit of a mystery to me, because we see so many people that used to do things, stop doing them, so it's obviously not automatic. And if you look in the Mikhtab Liyon, the Chelek Aleph, where he very very often discusses this, in many places he discusses this issue, he makes it very clear that it is not automatic, and there are many, many conditions that have to be met before it becomes Lishma. Besides what Taisus mentioned there, that not, not shouldn't be Almanasla Kanta, there are many other conditions, and that it's a very dangerous weapon. It's a very dangerous weapon, Shalalishma, and it has many downsides and should not be used in a random way. You know, a few years ago I had a mice. I've said over this mice so many times, and I find very sadly that most people think that this actually was a good thing. In fact, I spoke recently to a group of teachers in training. They also thought it was a wonderful idea, which I find very sad. A lady called me up from out of town. She wanted a phone consultation, and she told me that her, her son, a 16-year-old son, shows many, dropped out of yeshiva, was working somewhere part-time, and uh, he's, uh, you know, she was had work and complaints and, and concerns about the music he listens to, his hairstyle, the clothes he wears, the kids he hangs around with, etc. But she said she had one piece of good news. She wants to share with me one piece of good news. She got him to learn every day with a chavrusa for an hour. Didn't sound like that fit in with the rest of the story. I said, exactly, how did you accomplish that? She says, Pashit, he was dying to take driver's ed, and I told him, you can't do take driver's ed unless you learn every day with a chavrusa for an hour. Isn't that a wonderful thing? She got him to learn. And she really believed that somehow being blackmailed to do something you don't want to do will somehow turn into a wonderful thing. He's going to fall in love with learning. If that would happen, I would say, it's Mam Jimaisha Mashiach. This is almost as makes as much sense as the very well accepted punishment in many schools that if a kid misbehaves, you tell him that he must write over a parak in Mesilus Yishara. This is a guaranteed method to get a child to love Musar. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating that people think that even you can terrorize a child to do something that would happen, I want to share with you a quote from a worksheet that's put out by a very popular program in many yeshivas, in many day schools, in many Moises Achinach, that's uh, geared to promoting good midas. I won't mention the name, because I think it's Mamish Lashon Hara. The worksheet first relates the mice of Doma Benesina, the story in Kedushin that came out every child must have heard a hundred times, discussing Ad Heichen Kibbutz how far do you have to go, that is the mice of Doma Benesina, the Roman officer whose mother ripped off his cloak in front of everybody else, and he didn't respond. Right, of course, just like every child heard the story, I don't think there's one child in the world, and probably not too many adults, who know that Taisa Safanard says that she was in Terefis she had Alzheimer's, and that's why she did it, and the Yamsha Shleiman discusses it extensively, Afanard. That's a very well-guarded secret that nobody's supposed to know, but that's not the point of tonight's Indian. But this worksheet says the following, from the authors of the worksheet. The key to such awesome self-control of not responding, is developing the proper attitude. We are instructed, and here they're quoting the Mechaber, 
one should not respond negatively to his parents, but should remain silent and fear the Melch Malche Amlachim who has instructed him so. So the authors continue, For were a mortal king to instruct us to fill a difficult request, would we question his instructions? And now here's the punchline that the authors added to this paragraph. For example, if Saddam Hussein told you the sky is purple, would you dare argue? This was before he was put in jail. Right? You hear this? This is Gavaltic, what we're teaching our children. This is what they're teaching today in yeshivas to, to the children, in some yeshivas. Okay? I don't know if anybody notices. I called and complained to the authors. I did not get much of a response. Right? Do you hear this is what they're teaching? That the Rebbein Yishim Rachman Litzan is like Saddam Hussein. Why does one listen to Saddam Hussein? Why would you be terrified to respond? To ask any question? Because you think he has your best interests in mind? Or because he's a torturer? And that's why we listen to the Melch Malchi Amlachim, because he can torture us. Not because we realize that he has our best intentions in mind. This is what children are being taught. To summarize, certainly... One needs, we need, we need to protect our children from the outside environment, that's a dover pushit. Nobody creaks on that. But of course, it's not possible or even desirable to totally isolate children from the environment. And therefore, inevitably, they will have some exposure. So to minimize the risk, or the danger, the damage that that inevitable exposure will cause, we have to enhance the likelihood that children will associate their families and its values with pleasant feelings. Now, of course, it doesn't mean the parents have to be perfect. As Rabbi Horowitz said this morning from the Chassam Seifer, you know, for most problems with Midas, children are quite forgiving and don't expect their parents to be perfect. As long as, of course, I, I told him afterwards, that's only if the parent doesn't expect the child to be perfect. You know, it has to be fair on both sides. Right? Now, one way, one of the re- one way that one can maintain a positive relationship with their children is to have an ayin taiva. Right? To maintain a, 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 a positive perspective of the child. You know, there are some, there, I, I've met mothers who are totally convinced that they have the one child in the whole world who doesn't immediately, when you tell him to put away his toys, he doesn't run with a smile to put it away. Can you imagine the whole world, they got stuck with this child. Everybody, every other child in the world, as soon as the mother tells him to put away his toys, he runs with a smile to do it as quickly as possible. And they never got stuck with the one child who doesn't do it. You understand? The same thing Rabbi Gewurz mentioned today, that, you know, many times parents are convinced that the child is not listening because he's purposely being provocative. Right? And this is very often that parents attribute malicious intent to a child. There's a tremendous study that I always say over, I think, from somebody named Strasberg, who's a publisher in one of the journals, that he compared mothers who have a good relationship with a child and things are going relatively smoothly with ones where, where it's not like that. And what he found was, what he did was a very ingenious study. He showed them vignettes. He showed them, he had like video clips of like normal childhood behavior. For instance, a parent telling a child to finish playing because he has to go to sleep and he starts scratching, oh, come on, I want to finish my game. Okay? You'd be surprised. It's actually pretty normal, this type of reaction. It's those type of things. And the mother's job was simply to write a brief description of what she observed. And there was unbelievable difference between these two group of parents. The parents who, who got along well with their children and, and had a smooth relationship with them described it as a normal event. This is a child, you know, he wants to finish playing before he goes to sleep. 
And the other mothers who had difficulties described the very same event in a much more negative fashion. This is a child who's being rebellious, he's trying to overpower his parent, he's trying to have a merida, you know, and therefore it's not surprising because they, they, they were lacking the ayin toiva toward their child, it's not surprising that they had such difficulties. I want to finish with a true, end with a true story that I saw in a journal, a psychological journal. I think it's self-explanatory. So, and I think it brings out this point very beautifully of how very often it's a parent's attitude toward what a child does that's a greater problem than what's actually happening. And then I'll be, well, welcome your questions. So this story, this story, you know, one of the ways researchers try to untangle the difference, the impact of genes, genetic influences from environmental influences is by studying identical twins who were raised apart because they share the exact same genes, but they have a different environment. So this researcher is following has been following identical uh, twin girls who were separated in infancy and adopted, uh, by, raised by two different adoptive parents. At the age of two and a half, this researcher goes to interview the mothers. How the children are doing? So he comes to the first mother and says, How's Susan doing? And Susan's adoptive mother says, It's not good. The kid is mamish, unbelievably stubborn. I don't know how I'm going to put up with this. She's totally impossible. Every, especially mealtimes are the worst. She won't eat anything unless I put on cinnamon. She, she won't eat mashed potatoes. She won't eat eggs. She won't eat bananas unless I put cinnamon on it. And mamish, every meal is a battle. Okay, they go to the, uh, to the second twin girl. They go to, to Ellen's adoptive mother. So how things going with Ellen? Beautiful. Couldn't be better. Everything is developing. You sure everything is fine? Couldn't be better. How about mealtimes? Meal times are the easiest. As long as I put cinnamon on her food, she'll eat anything that I give her. Thank you. Okay. Any questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Raising a child, yes. Uh, I tell you, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, the question is that it seems to be very scary. To, you know, see everything that people hear in these in these presentations. That it seems like a very scary proposition. I must tell you that very often my patients, who some of them have gone through very difficult childhood, when they're ready to get married, very often they raise this question. They have tremendous trepidation about this whole parents parenthood issue. I always remind them that the reason why they had serious issues with their parents was not because their parents were imperfect. That was not the problem. There were gross violations of the covet of the child, like I think it was... Uh, um, Avi Shulman, I think, said it's from Ramesha, that the Chiev, you know, of being... of, 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 of having their heritage for a child, having covet Adam, he's also, he has also, he's also a Talmud-Lakim. He can't hurt a child's feelings either. He's not different than an adult. Right? So, usually the problem lies. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be reasonable. And... Even when people talk about what I, I mentioned the shtickle before in passing, but even when people talk about, you know, that sometimes people complain, kids who had difficult problems with their parents, they complain that their parents were inconsistent. Right? Very often it's one of the tiniest. But I always, I, when people say this, I, I always disagree. 
Because if, if we had to be consistent, constantly consistent, to be good parents, then we'd all be in deep trouble. The problem is that we demand consistency from the child when we don't practice consistency, and that's the greatest inconsistency of all. But if we're tolerant of the child being human, then he'll tolerate the fact that we're human also. In fact, I'll just tell you something interesting that, that uh, it reminds me that I once heard Ramatis show on the tape, he was saying that he brought down from Chayodam that the Mekayim, the mitzvah, Kibbut Aveim, in the Shlemus Dika form, not just the bare minimum halacha, it's not enough to be Machileyu, Mashkeyu, and everything else that the Shulchan says, but you have to think of them as special people. So Matisio asks, what happens if they're simple folk? Play Pashat the Yidin? So we're supposed to be delusional and think that they're famous? So he answered, no, Pashat, to you, to you they're special because they're your parents. So I once met Rabbi Tisho and I told him that in my experience that only works if they did that for the child first. If, you, if your parents thought that you're special, not because you did anything special, just because you were their child, then that's why they're special to you. Because no, to the rest of the world you're just plain old Joe. Right? You're just nobody special. You're just a regular one of everybody. To your parents, if they thought of you as being special, so they're very special people to you for that reason. Okay? I guess all's fine on the Western Front. <laughs> all right. Yes. Uh, yeah, because the excellence is different than greatness. See, because greatness means in comparison to others. Excellence means to try to nutzeis all your kaiches as much as possible to try to maximize your potential. Well, one way is the best way, like anything else in chinuch, is setting example. If a parent strives for excellence in what they do, then that will set a wonderful example for the child. And if you have a good relationship with a the child, they'll try to emulate you, emulate you and also try to strive for excellence. Another way is, even if the parent himself is not able to do it, the son of a Rebbe in the, in the, in the, in the Siva Chinuch uh, writes, you know, that the best way to encourage a child to learn is to learn. The child sees that the parent learns. He says, what if the father never had the opportunity to learn, and for whatever reasons... There's another Eitzif. He's Machshif Leimzei Taira. Right? There's a famous Maise with the, with the Chazaynish that there was a very Choshet Tamachachem in Bnei Brak whose children were not that interested in learning. And the, the milkman in the Shtat who was Grace Amaretz, he had Mamish children who were Grace Atamid Chachamim. So the Tamachachem asked the Chazaynish, like, what's going on? Why is this? So he said, Pasha, let me ask you. When, when you used to go to Shul and you hear the rough speak, what was your reaction? He asked the Tamachachem, Tamachachem Sometimes I agree, sometimes I don't agree. Depends what he said. He says, oh, that's the difference. Your, your son didn't see, your children didn't see that you're always masha to me by the milkman. Anything the Rav said was kadosh kadoshim. So that, that's, you know, uh, appreciating excellence in others. Of course, practicing yourself would be the best way. And appreciating the child sees that you're masha, adam asholeim, a person who's takish taiz and tries to maximize his potential, that would be the best way. Yes. Let me. No, you, you certainly very eloquently made your point. You know, I certainly don't feel that I'm the person to answer policy issues. I don't feel competent to do that. But let me just share with you what I heard from Chaim Siegel, uh, the master mechanech from Chaim Berlin. And he used to say, oh, they abolished in the high school there in the Beis the Masif, there is no olive base in Gimel class. For real. They didn't hide it and camouflage it in various different ways. And Taka abolished it. The whole is an unbelievable thing. 
And of course he stated, and he says the reason why he came to that is he recalled that many years ago in the, 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 the days of Rav Hutna, the Rav Hutna was once coming to visit his Masifta out in Brownsville, and uh, uh, one of the boys from the Gimel class came over to him, and they all heard that the Rashiva was coming to visit, that please don't let the Rashiva come to our class because we're the dummy class. And when he heard that, he said, forget it, he's not allowing it anymore. And he somehow managed to pull it off. Itaka aims for the middle, tries to deal with both, you know, the two people at the two extremes. So it seems that it could be done. Is it very destructive to the ones who are there? Yeah, of course. It's not only that, you know, many of the G'daylim write very strongly against all these contests and competitions that have become rampant. These mach- I'll tell you a Maishu Shahaya, I'll share with you. There's a Maishu Shahaya, a Bacher, who was a very edel of Bacher, but not... not uh, uh, it was a final bacher, and Abel, he was in, he was in, I think, in like eighth grade or something like that. Once came very upset to a session. What's the problem? I asked him. He said that it was they were the bachim were talking about a baseball game they were having Friday afternoon, and uh, they were planning the game. You know, it was during it was during recess. It wasn't during thing. And the, and the rebbe overheard them. He says, "What's going on?" He says, "We're planning a baseball game after class. We're going to go to the park." Does everybody get to play? Does everybody in the class who wants to play get to play? So he says, usually they play each other and everybody plays. But if they play another yeshiva, then of course only the best players play. So the, the, the Rebbe got all insulted. He said, what, what are you talking about? Like, how could that be? What do you mean? They're, they're, they're getting in, they'll be insulted. He says, no, no, they don't want to play because they want their team to win. You have to beat the other yeshiva, so they don't, they don't want to play. And the Rebbe was like furious about it. He said he's going to ban the whole thing. He's not going to let them go play in the park anymore. And the Bacher, like it was Mamash, he was Ice Man, she was an idol of Bacher, and Itaka didn't want to do the wrong thing. I'm not sure if I should have done what I did, but let me tell you what I did. It's Chatosai and Imagamaskir Hayyang, I don't know. I, it bothered me. I asked him, like, is, do they have Mishnai's charts in your, in, your, in your yeshiva? He says, of course, I do. I said, are there any Bacherim who Taka try very, very hard, but they don't particularly have a good Zikarin, and, and, and they're doing very shvach? He says, yeah, there's two Bacher in the class, and Mamish, they put in tremendous amount of hours, they're way behind everybody. I said, does it seem to bother your Rebbe that everybody walks into the classroom when parents come for PT and everybody sees where these, that they're, they're lagging behind the whole class? I said, well, I guess it doesn't bother him. Okay, that's all I said. Again, I don't know if I did the right thing or the wrong thing, but it really annoyed me. Why is it just jumping to the baseball game? You know, this is, is good. So, you know, in the contest, the son of a Rebbe writes, and the, Mamish, Mamish, Eish connected this thing of having all these contests, you know, with the, 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 and then, you know, the, the one who wins, he gets to be on stage, and everything says it's a churban for the one who wins, and it's a churban for the one who loses. And somebody told me that Ada Yemazed is a guy who runs a tremendous, uh, uh, what do they call it, Chevres Tehillim in Eretz Yisrael. He told me he has a budget of two million dollars, you can buy a state from what he, what he does, his budget. And he told me that, uh, that there was a son, there was a boy from a son family who was one of the kind of the finalists, and they have a whole thing in B'nai Alma with the Mamish with the Gansamaisa, and the Rebbe's, the current Rebbe said, absolutely not. He did not let him take part of it. He said it would be a Churban for the boy. And I saw once, I think for, from Rav Michal Yehud, I believe it was, I'm not 100% sure, I think it was one of the G'daylim he wrote, that if you follow the ones who win these contests, you will see that it did, if you follow them into the future and see how they do in the future, you will see that it was not particularly good for them. So I can only agree with you exactly how to do it. I'm not the person to ask. Okay, thank you very much.